Today on The Way Up Show, this eccentric little thing has become a big eccentric thing to the tune of a $6 billion per year industry in the U.S. growing at 7% a year. So who the heck is buying these things? You're listening to The Way Up Show, a podcast for anyone who thinks the housing market is broken and we can do something about it. My name is Jonathan Monk, but most folks just call me Monk. I'm the founder of Maslow, a company that makes the world's best backyard office studio. We believe in home ownership for all. Here, I'm talking about the history, design, technology, economics, culture, and the future of the housing industry, and the power of home ownership to change lives. Good morning and welcome to the most honest and hopeful housing industry show out there, Transcendentalism. That's the word for today. Thinking back, you probably remember learning about this 19th century movement called Transcendentalism, maybe in high school or college. Emerson and Thoreau most likely pop into your head as leaders of that movement, and for good reason, since on the Mount Rushmore of this movement, these two are the most prominent faces etched in the Transcendental Stone. So what is transcendentalism exactly? Well, most of us have at least a vague notion of the meaning here, and no, it has nothing to do with trans fats or gender, at least not in the direct sense. Henry David Thoreau, author, naturalist, and his fellow companions, they pushed for a lifestyle and a way of living that maybe seemed out of touch with where the world was going at the time. Naturalist. What a job title. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm a huge, huge outdoor lover, especially the mountains and remote alpine peaks and deep woods and remote desolate deserts, basically anywhere I can get away from everyone and everything and do hard physical stuff. Can you imagine being able to put on your LinkedIn profile that your job is a naturalist, though? I actually did a LinkedIn search to see if that's a real thing, and there are 41,000 people on LinkedIn right now with that job title, so it's a thing. What's the difference between a naturalist, a environmentalist and a conservationist well i don't really know but maybe you know maybe the environmentalist is the person who says i understand the world the natural world and understand how to care for nature and respect life and you know earth as a whole maybe a conservationist is someone who says you know how do we leave the smallest trace possible using that leave no trace ideology and maybe the naturalist is the one who says Man, look at that banana slug. Isn't that cool? <laughs> I mean, they definitely seem to have some differences. A, a naturalist seems to be an appreciator and a conservationist seems to be someone who's active and an environmentalist is someone who does a lot of thinking. You know, I, I once learned that, you know, there are talkers and there are doers and there are thinkers and people tend to be two of those three things. The naturalist is probably the thinker here and the conservationist is probably the talker here, and the environmentalist is probably the doer, just riffing. Thoreau was a naturalist, but what would you say that is exactly? I mean, if you really get down to it in a technical and, you know, actual sense of the word, living life in a way more in tune with how nature intended, that's part of the philosophy, maybe less rigid of a lifestyle, less concerned with what we call pop culture gossip, the Joneses, 
and certainly less worried about things like fashion, things, money, what other people think, living in tune with the seasons, with the natural world as a living being and not a cog in the machinery of a factory or an economy. And a similar thing is happening right now, in a way. In today's terms, we would call that escaping the rat race, maybe. Transcendentalism is more than naturalism, even. At least in part, it's about getting in touch with the natural core version of ourselves, which is where we can find something more meaningful, and that is truth. It's about transcending a lifestyle set by societal expectations and materialism and consumerism and harnessing another that targets minimalism and a sense of spirituality. It rejects the over-civilization of a modern developed society and holds really true to this idea that the wild natural world is something to be appreciated and connected with. It's a deliberate living over this monotonous kind of robotic style of existence that we tend to sort of fall into in the world today. I gotta be honest with you, that sounds pretty great. Now there's this growing group of people here in the United States and elsewhere, I'm sure, that adopt at least some of these ideologies in the way that they live. This idea of transcendentalism and this idea of naturalism. And these people are the owners of tiny homes. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, the tiny home movement, if you want to call it a movement, I think it's fair to say it's a movement, started in the late 90s in force, but really dates back to, I mean, 1970 probably is the first real documented case of that term being used in pop culture in any sense, but really blew up in the aftermath of the 2008 housing crisis and the recession. It's almost kind of a meme though in a way. I mean, it's a quirky little subculture that we like to peek into and observe the way you would going into a zoo, but kind of at the same time be happy that you're not part of. Have you ever seen one of these tiny homes being pulled down the highway? I mean, they're double the weight of a regular camping trailer and maybe even more than double. And I'm always worried as I see these things, you know, bumbling down the road on a trailer, those tires being compressed with every bump in the in the road, that this thing's going to just fall apart, blow over and explode in a, you know, ca- catastrophic rain of wood and splinters and nails all over the highway in some kind of disastrous fashion, you know, causing total mayhem at the same time. People are paying attention to this category though, right? I mean, it isn't just that use case. This is a real thing, this tiny house movement. Now, the movement itself is known for being quirky. Quirky's good though. Quirky creates ideas. We need creative people thinking outside the box to help us come up with better, more relevant, more sophisticated, more balanced ways of living. We need creativity, right? We can't all just be sort of automatons thinking that everything's fine the way it is. We need people pushing these boundaries. So I think this quirky you know, ideology, if you want to call it that, really is a good thing. But what do you think about when you think about a tiny house? Here's a few things that just kind of come off the top of my head, right? It's a 
cottage or maybe a craftsman style house made of wood with a pitched roof. It's got this welcoming interior with lots of natural materials, you know, woods being used, windows for natural light. It's going to have cleverly designed storage solutions. It might have, you know, expensive miniaturized appliances, right? Some sort of solution for all the different things that you've got to do, like cooking and, you know, cleaning your dishes and showering and all these things. Miniature kind of different versions of those comes to mind. Some kind of loft right? You're sitting on the top. That's where you sleep. And then, you know, overall, it's just this idealized, whimsical way of living. It's a very alternative lifestyle, right? Unlike other types of living. Like if you imagine yourself living in an apartment versus living in a single family home, how different is that life? I mean, at the end of the day, you don't have a yard, you know, if you're in an apartment, you may not have a garage or covered you know, a covered parking area. You might not have as much storage. You're going to share some walls, right? So there are differences, absolutely. But I mean, the way you do your laundry and the way that you cook and the way that you clean and when you have people over, I mean, most of the things that you do day to day are the same. And that's true for almost every type of living space, except tiny homes, Right? I guess you could put RVs in that category, right? Van life in that category. But it's a very alternative lifestyle, not just an alternative living space, but an alternative lifestyle overall. Now, people who own tiny homes harness some of this transcendental philosophy. And I got to give it to them. Some of what they represent, maybe even most of what they aspire to and what, and what they represent rings true for me. But There are parts of the lifestyle I just don't get, and I don't know if I can wrap my head around. I read an article the other day that puts it very well. It's called Dear People Who Live in Fancy Tiny Houses by Lauren Maudery. Take a listen to the first bit as I read this out to you. Quote, Dear people who live in fancy tiny houses, do you actually love living in a fancy tiny house? You look so freaking happy in that Dwell Magazine article or BuzzFeed post, but come on. You can't tell me that you don't lie awake at night, your face four inches from the ceiling because the only place your bed fits is above the kitchen sink, which also acts as your shower, and think, I've made a terrible mistake. Look, I'm not criticizing you. I commend you for making this giant leap. Since we humans seem comfortable with pillaging Mother Earth of all her resources, I believe more people should think like you, but 250 square feet... What the hell happens when your tiny house partner farts Mexican food farts, huh? Where do you escape to? Nowhere. You have nowhere to run. All you can do is walk three feet to the other end of the house and pray. Or maybe you can run out into the tiny forest surrounding your tiny house. (laughs) Close quote. Now, the idea is to have a more utopian lifestyle. Call me crazy, but I don't see part of utopia as being unable to escape the stale feeder that just came out of another person, you know? (laughs) Mottery goes on to list some of the questions about toilets and space and family dynamics that, you know, are automatically built into that equation. And I have many of the same questions myself. When you have a fight, I hope you don't mind sitting only seven feet away from the other person. It's real awkward, I bet, trying to do the silent treatment to someone that way. I mean, how do you sort of, you know, you got to leave the room. I mean, how do you, you know walk by the, you can't even get away from them. So 
you know, there's definitely some interesting dynamics at play. The idea of it is pretty swell. The reality of it, not so much. Maybe like moving to Japan because you love video games and anime, sashimi, and you know, those completely out there TV game shows, but then realizing you don't speak Japanese, but you end up on one of those out there crazy game shows, and somehow you're just about to be electrocuted in the undercarriage for answering a question wrong, and you really just want to go home like this. Wakuraka? <laughs> Mother of mercy, I don't speak Japanese! <laughs> oh, Tadama Sago no Shitsuman. Mary, call the American Embassy! <laughs> you remember that from Saturday Night Live, perhaps from the, you know, golden era of that show. But the crazy thing is, last I checked, there were some eight different shows on streaming services about tiny homes. Tiny House Nation, Tiny House Big Living, Tiny Luxury, Tiny House World, Terrific Tiny Homes, Tiny Paradise, Tiny House Hunters, Tiny House Hunting. The gerund makes it a totally different thing, obviously. Which one of these is your favorite reality small living space? show. A veritable smorgasbord of hot and cold meats in the form of 400 square foot homes and the fun personalities and even more fun, I don't know, sometimes this just infinite mediums and shows is just adding to the cesspool of the thing that tiny houses are purporting to help you escape. It's very ironic. There I said it. The tiny home movement is probably not going anywhere. In the past 20 years or so, This eccentric little thing has become a big eccentric thing to the tune of a $6 billion per year industry in the U.S. growing at 7% a year. So who the heck is buying these things? What about toilets and hygiene? Are people really happy with them? Do they stay there and live there forever? Or is this like a stage of life type of thing? What's the actual cost Is it something that masses could adopt, like everybody? Or is this just something for a few people? You may be asking yourself, what qualifies as a tiny house to begin with? Well, the answer isn't really cut and dry. Yes, it is. There's actually a definition on a tiny house. Let me pull out my trusty 2018 International Residential Code Appendix Q subsection tiny houses. That's real, by the way. And here's the definition. It's got 400 square feet of floor areas or less. That's 37 square meters. It may or may not have wheels. It may be mobile or stationary. It uses traditional construction methods. It is not to be confused for a small house. A tiny house is different from a small house. A small house is 400 to 900 square feet and may include things like accessory dwelling units, you know, which are backyard, mother-in-law style apartments, normally rented out, or RVs, for example. Some tiny houses are on wheels, some have a foundation, some are fabricated, while others are more kind of do-it-yourself. Some use shipping containers as an initial form, and others use more standard materials. Some are off-grid, others aren't, but one thing connects them all. They are all cleverly designed, small spaces, with an average square foot of about 400 square feet. And that's on the high end of the average. Now, 
Now you see why Miss Mottery, who we quoted earlier, had some questions. These spaces are small, but the reality is there is still interest in them. 63% of millennials say they would consider buying one. Now, I, I do have to say, if you're one of those 63%, are you really saying you want one or are you really saying the housing market is so crazy right now, I'll settle for anything, including a tiny house? I mean, that's my asterisk to that 63%. But anyway, the data says 63% of millennials say they would consider buying one. 40% of actual tiny home owners are over 50 years old. But what's the range of that? You know, if you're over 50, what are you under? You know, what age are you under when you think about that, right? I can't imagine a 90-year-old going up a basically vertical set of stairs to climb into their, you know, loft bed without worrying about breaking a hip. The profile of the buyers is pretty specific, and you'd probably be able to guess very easily what the profile is. Owns a Subaru, 80% chance. Owns a dog, 65% chance. No kids at home, 75% chance. Net worth under $200,000, 60% chance. Student debt, yes. Don't want a mobile home, yes. Active lifestyle, most likely. Simplified life, check. Actual statistics. No, they're not. We're seeing the market flesh out here. People who have tons of student debt who can't afford to buy a home and people who may not have kids at home anymore and are preparing for retirement. There is this glorified view of this simplified life kind of perpetuating all of this, right? I think that's probably the biggest idea of the entire kind of industry. It's an aspect of this transcendental lifestyle, but it's really about simplification. Being a consumer, I mean, think about it. If you are if you only have 400 square feet, how long does it take to tidy up, right? We, I've gone from a, you know, 2,500, to 3,000 square foot house into a 1,500 square foot apartment for a while. And man, there are some downsides, but cleaning up is not one of them. And you can do it really quickly, right? So imagine you only have 400 square feet. It doesn't take long to clean up. You don't have a lot of stuff to organize. You just can't, right? So so you're automat- You're kind of forcing yourself to, to you know, keep that simpler lifestyle. And it really is easier to do. Being a consumer for more than 60 years and acquiring more stuff every year that needs to be maintained, insured, and needs a place to go, has to be replaced for its new version years on end. Maybe the prospect of living a consumer lifestyle is just not appealing for everyone. As you know, you're staring down this idea that, man, for the next 60 years, I'm going to be consuming stuff and spending a bunch of money on it. Or on the other end, maybe being a consumer for the last 50 years has worn you out. I get it. Quite. So what kind of pocket change are we talking about here to make your own tiny oasis? DIYers should expect to fork out about thirty dollars to $60,000 for the structure and whatever else, you know, on top of it to put the stuff inside you want. But generally, that's going to be one without a foundation, right? If you want one with a foundation that's considered kind of a traditional home, well, You know, you got to have land to put it on and that costs money and that comes with things like inspections and permits and fees and taxes. It's not uncommon to see those prices go for up to and over $100,000. And this is where things get a little problematic for tiny home aficionados. The data shows that millennials see a tiny home as a rung in the ladder to get to a real home. Maybe 
I shouldn't put it that way, to a normal-sized home. I don't want to denigrate a tiny home, but these homes they're building, they're most likely not ones that have foundations because that's very much more expensive. So most people that actually build tiny homes don't put them on a traditional foundation. So if you're looking at this through a lens and saying, this is the thing that's going to help us buy a traditional home more quickly, that's not true, right? And if you've listened to past episodes, you know exactly what that means, right? If the house is not attached permanently to the ground, it won't appreciate in value. So that rung in their ladder, the one labeled tiny house and is supposed to get them to the next rung, a traditional home, it's slowly slipping down because this thing is depreciating just like anything else. It won't work. So if you're one of these millennials kind of thinking about this, don't do this if you are doing this because you think it's going to help you have a down payment for a traditional house. It's not going to work. It won't work. And there are more problems too. I mean, outfitting a tiny home is expensive. These little tiny appliances, they're actually much more expensive than a normal size one. A window AC unit, right, that you would just put in your bedroom because you want to keep cool in the summer, costs about 400 bucks. But an AC unit for an RV with the same BTU, but the same output in terms of cooling power, costs about 1500 bucks. So why is that? I mean, aerodynamics, I guess, but they're just more expensive. Because they can charge more money, they do. It's the same thing for sinks, dishwashers, fridges, toilets. I mean, all of it. They're all more expensive. And furniture isn't really designed for these small spaces, right? You're not going and buying a regular couch or a regular chair or a regular table or a regular bed. You have to have customized, specific solutions for these things. There's not a lot of companies that make that stuff. Prices are high. A lot of people end up making custom versions of these things. And if you're not, you're going to pay kind of out the nose because a lot of these products, you know, a lot of these furniture products, they're going to have to do multiple things or fit in a particular place in a particular way, be able to move out of the way, etc. So, you know, furniture's not designed for these things. And so you end up doing custom stuff. Cha-ching. And that's not a good cha-ching. Or what about where to put it, right? This big question hanging out there. There are some tiny home communities popping up around the country, but how many have you seen? They aren't plentiful. It isn't all that easy finding a place to actually put one. Some people try to put them in RV parks, but you know, for the best circumstance, it seems you really need to own some land or have a good friend. And zoning laws they add a big hiccup to the process because, you know, zoning laws were written way before this idea existed and there's a lag in the laws and so there's not really clear-cut answers and it makes it really challenging. Depending on the city and state where you live, the standards for minimum number of square feet for a tiny house needs to be considered a house and a bunch of different safety measures also need to be built into it. Tiny homes don't meet many of those requirements, right? It, they're not big enough to qualify as a regular house. They don't have the traditional types of utility hookups and connections. So, I mean, the, the, think about this. The codes were written to prevent someone from building a house that wasn't connected to a sewer system or wasn't connected to a power grid, right? But today, you can have your own kind of independent 
power system in the form of solar power and battery packs, for example, or, you know, you could run an RV kind of toilet situation going on, or even put in your own septic system if you want to, right? So there's alternatives, but the zoning laws really haven't kept up with that. So they don't meet the requirements as they're written by the law. For example, you know, just listen to this headline, quote, tiny house owners are facing evictions or living under the radar because their homes are considered illegal in most parts of the U.S. Close quote. That's from Business Insider. Now, this article relates a story about one tiny house owner who tried to keep things under the radar, but in the end really couldn't. What she found out was that her tiny home broke some of the zoning ordinances in her area and she needed to get an occupancy permit to have it properly zoned, right? So she finds this out. She's trying to follow the proper channels. But, you know, there was no building code for tiny houses, so it automatically breaks the zoning ordinances. So she prepares this presentation to show to the zoning board in her community. They deny her request, right? So so the laws weren't made for this type of living, so it's kind of a mess, right? What do you do? Well, the laws are slowly changing, but meantime, it's an absolute headache for anyone trying to make this tiny home dream happen if you don't have a great place to put it. But what about the money part of a tiny house? Most banks and appraisers don't know how to handle these types of homes either. I mean, it's not a traditional mortgage. So what do you say when you go to the bank and say, hey, I'm going to do this? I'm, I'm basically building you know, a, a very sophisticated backyard treehouse type of situation and I need you to help me fund it. And by the way, it's going to move, you know, from place to place. Well, if I'm a bank, I'm going to say, well, if I do that at all, you know, it's not a traditional home equity loan because, you know, you don't have a home to draw equity from. It's not a mortgage. So it's not that. Uh, It's not a car loan or an RV loan. You know, it's a personal loan, right? The riskiest type of loan, they're really hard to get. So financing is really tough, right? A lot of people jump into the pool of wanting to build a tiny house and they have to sort of squabble together different resources in order to make it happen. You know, personal debt, like credit card debt and so forth. Now with such small spaces and not a lot of ventilation and moving air, right? If we're talking about the physical space inside of a tiny house, a lot of tiny homeowners report having problems with mold growing inside, right? They're not really sophisticated enough to handle some of those issues. Don't forget the toilets. Now, if the home isn't hooked up to traditional water and sewer system, then you're using a composting toilet. Now, these use sawdust or peat moss and constantly have a constantly running fan to deal with the smell of the waste. But you still have to empty out the toilet. And man, if you have guests over and, you know, they have some kind of issue, you're going to have to deal with that. And that's embarrassing and a whole problem and a pain to deal with. I can't imagine that peat moss and a fan can really deal with all the stink. Peat moss, your way to transcendence. More on that in a second, but first, let's take a quick break for the news. Sometime while watching the endless stream of ASMR YouTube videos about some person feeding their three wild shrimp they put in a completely chemical-free tank with the use of natural seaweed from the ocean and have kept that away for 28 months, and now you find yourself lulled into a slightly fitful sleep when the channel changes to a video about a guy who knows everything in the world there is to know about ants, and you want to know them too, it's nice to have a little tap on the shoulder and come back to reality in a little segment I call 
The Way Sideways. Back in November of 2021, the Boston Globe reported on the sale of a tiny house. Now, this must be one of the real pioneers of the movement because the house was built in 1970 on a 2,500 square foot lot. The house itself is 291 glorious square feet and everything inside seems to be nicely updated. The home, and I have to assume the lot too, just sold for $315,000 US and that's over $1,000 per square foot. Not bad. That's nine times the national average of the price per square foot. So, you know, really not bad. Looking at the pictures of this house before it was sold, it's nice. White wood on all the walls and cabinetry, dark wood floors, new tile in the bathroom area, quote, knee-high ceilings above the bed, close quote. Nice. It was a cash offer. When the home first went up for sale, it was listed at four forty-nine. The price had to be cut down because the banks weren't willing to finance it. Bummer. I think the price the seller got is, well, I mean, they should be happy with it, I'd think. Note to self, don't go looking for a house in Newton, Massachusetts anytime soon. This almost certainly will be marketed as an Airbnb anytime. I'm expecting to see it pop up. Because, of course, Newton is the birthplace of a lot of famous people. And also, the Puzzle Break Escape Room is there as well as an annual sheep shearing festival, which I'm sure you're going to want to go to. Keep an eye out for that listing. This has been The Way Sideways. Now, earlier I said that there are things about tiny homes and what they represent that I actually agree with. The lifestyle itself, you know, has solid ideas. Tiny homes reject the notion that we need lots and lots of stuff. We're constantly bombarded with messages to get more and the latest stuff. It's unnecessary. Have what you need. Have what you use. Buy it once. Have what brings you joy. Get rid of the excess. More and more companies like Patagonia are adapting this message by quality that lasts rather than the latest trend. It's a good thing, in my opinion. There's a German saying, we're too poor to afford cheap things. I like that. But we also need to ensure that quality isn't out of reach. Tiny homes are more environmentally friendly. They can be off the grid, and they can usually allow you to connect with nature more and connect with the people around you more. Certainly more, right, if you're you're sharing a tiny space. Instead of having a couple of big living rooms in your house, outside becomes your living room. So you use less materials, you have less waste, you use less energy, certainly less energy to create the home itself, right? Utilities, if you're off the grid, are generally low, and if not, you're just kind of paying for setup. Overall, it's way lower cost, right? Now, if you have less space in your home, you're going to venture elsewhere for experiences. Rather than sitting on the couch and streaming shows or playing video games, it's in these things that I see a real benefit. Those are good things. Since 1980, the average home size has risen 150% in the United States, and this isn't due to huge mansions. This has a lot to do with popular culture and government laws and our own economics. America was built on people getting their own land and having their own home. FDR famously said, a nation of homeowners, of people who own a real share in their own land, is unconquerable. Beautiful statement, right? That, I mean, he just basically, boom, this is the American dream. It's part of who we are. In an article in The Atlantic, Sonia Hurt 
who is a professor of landscape architecture and planning at the University of Georgia, says this, quote, American culture to begin with is unusually spacious in the sense that people think of space as part of the American culture. It isn't part of the French or British cultural experience. This is partially part of the American promise that you can have more room, close quote. I mean, think of, you know, Texas, right? The whole American West, open spaces, lots of room. Everything's bigger. What we deem as normal in America is different than what is deemed normal in other parts of the world. Americans think they must have space to host large parties and gatherings or need space for specific types of activities. The crazy thing is, even with 150% increase in sizes of your homes in the last 40 years, the average size of a family has actually decreased at the same time. We often complain about the cost of homes, and rightly so, they're expensive, but in a very real way, because of our culture and expectations, we contribute to the rise in housing costs ourselves. Tiny homes sit on the opposite extreme of all of this space and things, you know, do we really need them? A tiny house owner will say, no, we just need a good outdoor space and, and just the right quality things. So maybe part of solving the housing crisis lies in part with solving some of the problems within our own culture and within our own selves. Now reflect back to Thoreau and Emerson and what they taught, how they lived, letting go of materialism and excess in favor of minimalism and prioritism and really living in a purposeful way, deliberate living, space to come to yourself. This is all part of what we need in a true living space. With how complicated lives can be these days, with all these things we need to get done and the blurring lines between work and home, it's essential we create the proper boundaries so we can breathe and become Tiny homes, in part, help with that. But that doesn't mean you have to ditch your place in favor of a box on wheels with a composting toilet. It's an adoption of the mindset. So there you have it. The Way Up Show with Monk. Produced by Randy Strew of Envision Podcasting. Associate writer, David Monk. You can rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to The Way Up Show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you go to listen to your favorite shows. 